One of my favorite things to do is, uh, I don't know if it's my favorite thing to do. It sounded like a good thing to say, and Patrice is an errant to say it this way. But I think it still is one of my favorite things to do. We, I love to go for walks with my wife. It might not be one of my favorite. We, we go for walks on a regular basis. Uh, and when we do, it's just natural. You don't even think about it. I just reach down and grab her hand, or she grabs mine. Uh, the other day, Sammy and I, Sammy's my 17-year-old daughter, we were just about 17, we were on our way to Chipotle, I think, we got out of the car, and she reached down and grabbed my hand as we walked in, but, you know, this swelled my heart. Um, whenever uh, Lauren and I go out, and she would grab my hand, or, or mine, hers, again, my, my heart is swollen, when I go see one of my boys, my big strep and guys at college, they give me a big old bear hug, you know. Uh, they squeeze me a little bit too tight sometimes, but, but it's wonderful. I can't imagine what heaven would be like if we didn't have our bodies. You know, I, I don't, doesn't matter if you're from a staunch German home or whatever where we just don't touch here. Or, you know, maybe it's a dysfunctional home where touching is just not a good thing. Healthy touch by a healthy person in a healthy environment. I mean, you were made for that. It's, it's a sign of, of, of affection. You know, it's, it's when Mary saw Jesus when he rose. She gave him a big hug. It's just, it's just an incredible thing that God has made. Without bodies, we don't get that in heaven. Now, uh, we're talking about the resurrection. Uh, we started this, this series, Can't Lose, and we're, we're looking at a doctrinal study on the resurrection as located in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, you need to know, first century Judaism, Bible, these folk all had an understanding of the resurrection. And the, none of, on none of their buckets lists was this idea of we're going to like live forever eternal in this disembodied kind of state. You know, this was not considered eternal life by, by the folk of Scripture, first century Judaism. You had to be risen and you had to, this was life. Uh, these guys lived off of the Old Testament, Old Testament. It's their, their scripture. And you see this, I mean, in several places, but let me just read one for you. The, one of the oldest books, maybe the oldest book of the Old Testament, the book of Job. Job says in chapter 19, verse 25 through 27, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And this is multiple references in Scripture in the Old Testament to this idea of resurrection. And so uh, get to the New Testament, and they take that and kind of it goes on steroids in Romans 6. And we can go to a lot of different places. And so Paul says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. His resurrection was real. It was literal. Romans 8 says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We see in 2 Timothy. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Remember, and you got uh, Jesus coming to Martha. Remember the story, Lazarus died and he comes to Martha and she's all brokenhearted. And Jesus says to her, and this is John 11, he says, Martha, your brother will rise again. 
And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, Jesus was getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, but she's looking, like typical Jewish thought, to the end of the age. And when everything is culminated, when everybody is risen, that's what she's looking for. That was the typical Jewish thought. But the Corinthians were not Jewish. The, the, the church in Corinth was on a different continent. It was 1,200 miles away from Jerusalem, a sea away. And these folk were very Greek in their thinking. For them, resurrection was not part of the deal. As a matter of fact, all material, but the human body included, was, was wrong. It was bad. It was the source of our pain. It was the source of our struggle. It was the source of our limitations. And so death was an escape from the body. You know, this idea of who wants a body, you know, and get rid of the body, that's, that was the goal. And so Paul comes to these folk and he shares with them the gospel. We went over this last week that Jesus Christ died for their sins according to scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he rose on the third day according to scriptures. And then to prove it, he appeared. And, and he just goes over a handful of different people that he appeared to. He appeared to James and he appeared to Peter and he appeared to the apostles and he appeared to 500 people at one shot and he appeared to me and what Paul is saying is you check with these guys Jesus really rose he really appeared and then he starts to get into his his argument in the text because Paul when he wrote Corinthians the first 14 chapters, he was dealing with all of these issues that they had. And they had lots of issues, all kinds of issues. And he was dealing with everything. I mean, everything from sexual stuff to pride stuff to uh, gluttony stuff to uh, special supernatural things going on, all kinds of things. He's, he deals with it. And then he says one more thing. Before I let you go, we really need to talk about this resurrection thing. And they may be thinking, Paul resurrection thing? I mean, were, were any of us complaining about this? That's not splitting the church. Listen, this is irrelevant to our lives. We're, we're, it's not how to be happy or how to be forgive people or how to be a good spouse or how to... This concept of, 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 of resurrection is a future. It doesn't matter. I mean, there's doctrinal stuff, Paul, doesn't really matter. I remember I was in school years ago and uh, class on, on Christology, right? And and this gal, she she raises her hand right at the beginning of class, and she goes, "You know, all these people talking about theology, and I don't need any theology. Just give me Jesus." You know, and uh, I don't know if the guy said it this way, but it was kind of like, "Well, what Jesus do you want? Do you want the Jesus who is God in the flesh? Oh, theology proper. Do you want the Jesus who came for to die for our sins? Oh, that's soteriology. Do you want the, the Jesus who, who was dwelt with the Holy Spirit? That's pneumatology. You want the Jesus who's coming again? Oh, that's eschatology. You can't have Jesus without theology. And Paul's saying you can't have the Christian life without this understanding, without doctrine. It's a good thing. It directs us. Now, here's a good question for us. As we think about the resurrection, just answer yourself, what is it that the resurrection really does for us? I mean, I mean, our justification is bought on the cross. It's on the cross that Jesus died in our place. Our sins are atoned for on the cross. 
It's on the cross that we are pardoned. It's on the cross that we are rescued. It's on the the cross when he takes away our sins that we are able to be uh, adopted into the family. It's it's the cross by which we are saved, right? So what do you really need a resurrection for? And maybe that's a little bit where the Corinthians are. Yeah, this resurrection now, but really what do you need this for? And so... Paul tries to get everyone on the same page and says, well, let me remind you of the gospel. You know, Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he was seen all these by all these people proving it. He gets them all thinking, yeah, yeah, the resurrection, I guess. And then he starts to get into his, his discussion. So if you got your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because Paul is going to answer for us. So what about the resurrection? I mean, what does that really do? Well, our sins are taken care of on the cross. Why do you really need a resurrection? Paul's going to answer that, and he's going to go at least two ways here. He's going to talk about the significance of the resurrection and the ramifications of the resurrection. Okay, now there's a lot of stuff in this text, and so we're going to kind of cruise through it a little bit of it. Um, but you want to try to follow his thinking. He just got everybody. Jesus rose. Jesus rose. Everyone's saying, yeah, yeah, he rose. He's got them thinking the same way. Now he says in verse 12, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then how come some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Maybe there doesn't, not everybody, right? Some of you. And that word you might want to circle like to write my, my Bible because that word's going to come back later on. This some of you, there were some folk in the Corinthian church, maybe folk who got saved and they start thinking about this thing and it's hard to get the Corinthian stuff out of your system. Maybe they went to their family reunions and they were mocked a little bit for believing in a resurrection so they started adjusting their thoughts. Maybe someone came in from outside to the church and they just taught a Sunday school class and started slamming the resurrection or maybe would raise their hand when someone else was teaching and just come up with an apologetic against the resurrection. And so there's this teaching going on in, in the church. Who needs a resurrection? What's this resurrection thing about anyway? For crying out loud, it's, it's limiting. We don't need this. There's some of you that teach this. And Paul says, uh, Jesus rose, didn't he? Body. He was a physical body. He ate. He, why? How can you teach there's no resurrection? And then he goes on. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's a waste. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you, guess what, are still in your sins. Then those who, are, who have all fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this world only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He he starts going through what we lose if we lose a resurrection. He uses interesting words. In verse 12, I think, 13. Let me keep going. 14. Says that it's 
Your faith is futile. It's, it's empty. It's in vain. My preaching's in vain. In 17, he says that not only that, but your faith is futile, in vain, futile. Same, what the word means, different words. But what it means, both of them mean the same sort of thing. They mean empty. The idea is... Um, someone tried to sell you a treasure chest and you looked at this treasure chest and it looked authentic and they wheeled this thing in with, with, with dollies and stuff and you're thinking this baby must be pretty heavy and you're just imagining all the gold and silver and doubloons and diamonds and gems and this thing's going to be packed, man, it's great and so you get it and you open it up and there's nothing in there and you're thinking for crying out loud it promised so much but it's empty, and that's what he's saying. Your faith promised so much, but it's empty. It's nothing. You're wasting your time. Now, Lee Iklov goes through several things that we lose if we lose the resurrection. And let me uh, go over some of those with you. First of all, um, if Jesus is not raised, then what we do is we find Jesus right where we left him. Right? He's on the cross. He's humiliated, scorned, shamed, dead. The Godhead has been rendered. The Trinity has, at least it's a whole lot different than we ever imagined. Uh, Jesus can still be the paragon of, of goodness and love. That's wonderful. But he is not the Lord of Lords. He never ascended to the throne of his father, David. He is not the wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He assaulted hell and Satan and death, and he lost. And so put away your hallelujah choruses, right? Because this kingdom of the world is not the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, no king, no kingdom. And so this thought that he's going to take us to a heavenly home one day isn't going to, I mean, the home, the, the path was never made. Our pathfinder couldn't find it. There's going to be no, no pearly gates and no gold streets and no, no, no tears, no death, no mourning, no river of life flowing through the street. There's going to be no redemption of the world. Things are going to continue on as they are. There will be injustice reigning. There will be evil being proclaimed because Jesus was not raised from the dead. The people in heaven would be looking for someone to open the scroll to a better life, but they could find nobody if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. If Jesus died but didn't rise again, then the love of Almighty God has been stymied. Uh, It's been shut down. Maybe he did love us. Maybe he threw everything into this task, right? He really tried, really tried. God gave it his best. But after it was all said and done, death was just a little bit too formidable of a foe. We were left on the balcony saying, wherefore art thou? But love, God's love doesn't show up because it can't. It can't get beyond death if Jesus has not been raised. If, in fact, Jesus has not been raised, then Satan, the dark prince, has won. Eve's greatest child, you know, the one who was supposed to crush the head of the serpent, didn't do it. And and Satan holds high the cross. And Satan wears it around his neck as a sign of victory. And God may damn him to hell forever, but he's won earth. He's conquered Jesus He's taken us as booty. He's still in God's glory. If Jesus 
It's not raised from the dead. Matter of fact, if Jesus wasn't raised in all of our preaching, Paul says here, is useless. Preaching of the gospel. Everything from Peter's first message to mine today. Everything in between. Every message you've ever heard. Useless. Doesn't matter how compelling, how entertaining, how emotionally moving. They were empty. And so whatever hope Luther or Zwingli or Chrysostom or Billy Sunday or Billy Graham or you as you share with your friends any hope that might be put out there is a lie. It's false promises that will never be fulfilled. You know, Macbeth's lines are not too pessimistic when it says that life is but a, a shadow, a walking shadow, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Because that's life if Christ has not been raised uh, if you if you take out Christianity out of the Christian life, what you do is you just gut the Christian life. You hear people say, well, even if Christian life's not true, that's a good thing, man. It was a good life for me. Well, Paul would say we are of all people to be most pitied if it's not true. It is not a good thing. If you would say that, most probably you weren't raised as a believer in the Sudan or in some of the countries in the world with Shia law or Nepal that just made it illegal this week to uh, proselytize or to, or to claim your, your faith. You try to live out your faith in those places in horrific consequences. Such consequences, you would not be saying, well, this was still a good thing anyway. Paul says, if it's not true, man, we got to get rid of it. We, we, we preach God. We get most of the stuff we know about God from his word, hopefully, right? But we get a good amount of it from the crucifixion and the resurrection. And if the crucifixion and the resurrection never happened, then we are misrepresenting God. That's kind of a big thing. We're attributing to God a, a resurrection that he did not participate in. Uh, our, our teaching ends up being maybe naive at best, straight up lies at worst. Our theology is not the queen of sciences. It is the beggar of sciences if Jesus wasn't raised. There's another thing about God, and that is that we get it all wrong about his creation. The deists, see, they were right, apparently, that that God kind of wound up the world and then walked away. Or maybe the Greeks got it right that all of material world and our bodies and and this earth, it's not worth saving. And and there's not going to be a a redemption of it. Creation is going to continue on to to groan under things like uh, entropy and survival of the fittest until it is nothing more than, than dust and ashes. If Jesus hasn't been raised. Uh, we're also wrong about the idea that uh, God is really committed to saving sinners. If Jesus is not raised, either he doesn't want to or he just can't save sinners. This whole idea that, that we are uh, loved children of the Heavenly Father is nothing more than an orphan's dream. If, in fact, Jesus has not been raised. Uh, Another thing we have wrong about uh, Jesus is that, uh, according to Scripture, God never, if Jesus wasn't raised, God never affirmed him as his Messiah, as the Son of God. 
Because when Jesus was, was being mocked at his crucifixion, remember the, the, the Pharisee folks said, said, he trusts in God, let God come and deliver him if he delights in him. For he, Jesus said, I am the son of God. Well, you know what? God never showed up if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So Jesus probably thought he was the son of God, but he got that one wrong if he didn't rise from the, from the dead. Uh, Paul's word for futile here is, is interesting where he says, your faith is futile, our preaching is futile. The word can mean deception. It's like a spiritual Ponzi scheme. You know, it's, it's, it's a, the, the faith of a sucker is being feeding off the faith of another sucker. At the end, there are no assets at all if Jesus hasn't been, if he hasn't been raised. This is a, a scary thing, actually. Verse 17, where it says, and if Christ hasn't been raised, you are still in your sins. So even if Jesus was God's son, and even if he really did come to die for your sins, and he, he was, you know what? When he said it's finished, if he didn't rise, he, it's not finished. It's never finished. If Jesus didn't right, rise again, if we're still in our sins, you know what else? We are unredeemed. We're not redeemed. Which means that we are guilty of our sin. And so we go, God, the Father, saying, I'm guilty, looking for mercy. We find none. Because according to the book, uh, the guilty must be punished. And we recognize we're guilty. And so we might look and say, well, God, the cross, Jesus died for me. And he would say, well, that's fine and good. But I didn't accept his payment for your sins. How can we say he conquered the grave if he's still in it? How can we say he's conquered death, the thing that is our most intractable enemy, if in fact uh, he's still dead? What the resurrection does is, is the resurrection proves that what he said was true. It proves that, that his, his uh, death was sufficient. If he didn't rise, Paul's saying, let's go home. Let's just sell this place to the royal order of the moose because we're wasting our time. Everything is, is, is wrong. This doesn't work if he hasn't been risen from the dead. But look at verse 20. This is a great verse, isn't it? But, don't you get a circle that word. That's a great word. But, the greatest word in this whole section. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. All this thought that, that if in fact he hasn't, it's going to be a bad deal. But he has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, Paul says, of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits, it's a uh, promise. It's, it's, it's the very first of your harvest. The very, very first, before you put any in your mouth, the very first you harvested, you took, you, you plucked, and you, you gave to him. It was the very first, promising a harvest yet to come. It was the very beginning, and there was a huge harvest following. He said, Jesus is the first fruits. He says, there, there is a, a harvest yet to come. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made 
alive. Remember, God told Adam in Genesis, said, the day you eat of this, Genesis chapter 2, the day you eat of this, you shall surely die. Interesting word, die. You ever, you ever think about this? you got to say it that way, die. What you, interesting word. It means to separate. And it's to separate like this, something that is so connected, it's interwoven, that when you do separate it, it, it ends up destroying what was. And God says, when you, when you sin, Adam, you will die. You will destroy what was. You will be separated. And sure enough, he was separated first spiritually, separated from God, destroyed the relationship he had with God. Relationally, life as we know it is, is death. You know, some of your relationships are, are, are gone. They're, they're not to be fixed. Some of them are, are, on life support right now, they're just a, a real mess. Some of them can change on, even your best relationships can change on a second. Someone says the wrong, does it, they, they can shift. Relational death is, is what we know. Adam, of course, was kicked out of the garden and, and God said from this point on, you're gonna, you're gonna survive not thrive, and you're going to do it by the sweat of your brow. You're going to be fighting weeds and fighting germs and fighting viruses and fighting storms and fighting cancers, and you're going to have to fight because it's not going to be what it was at one point. You've been separated from that. It's death. Everybody who is in Adam experiences what Adam experienced. All of us are in Adam. Guess what? We experience what Adam has experienced. But... This is not a plea for universalism. All of those who are in Christ will experience what Christ experienced. Christ experienced a bodily resurrection. Everyone who's in Christ, since he was the very first, will experience a bodily resurrection. Um, the next, he makes it clear in the next verse, I think, 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. This order that he talks about, just so, so you, you can see this, Christ, right, with the first fruits, when he comes back, that's when this resurrection happens. When he comes back for his church, that's when the, the resurrection happens for everyone who believes in him. It has another then, which will mean another gap. We would put in the millennial kingdom there. That's a whole other message. We'll talk about that some other time. But then what happens, just so you know, uh, Daniel 7, Daniel 12, Revelation 20, uh, there is a resurrection of all the unrighteous. I mean, everybody is resurrected. I mean, everybody is, re- not just believers in time, everybody is. Now, when the unrighteous are resurrected, they are resurrected to a judgment. Uh, again, a whole other issue. That's not part of Paul's argument here. That's why he leaves that part out. But he'll talk about it other places. Then he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now he's going to go through in verses 27 and 28. It's a pretty heady argument, so we're going to jump that one because I want to get to the the ramifications of the uh, resurrection. The the significance of it is uh, the fact that if it didn't happen, everything is a no-go. But if it did... All those things that I had mentioned, just the opposite are true. 
Uh, he does love us. He does have power. Jesus has ascended to the throne of his father, David. We're not in, in our sins at, at any point anymore. And now he gets into the, the uh, ramifications. And I'll tell you, verse 29 is the most difficult, some have said the most difficult verses in the Bible. I think they're, they're, it's definitely one of the top ten, right? Otherwise... What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Hey, what in the world is this? There are uh, cults out that will baptize folk for the dead. But what, what, is, what, is this, what does this mean? It's not a hard verse really to, to, to uh, translate. It's pretty straight up. It's a harder verse to interpret. There are at least 40 different interpretations for this verse alone. You need to, to know some things, though. Well, we're not sure what this means, but this being baptized on behalf of the dead, no other church in all the New Testament mentions anything like this. Paul doesn't command it here, notice. Doesn't slam it here either, which is kind of an issue, I think. But, but no other church has this. For centuries of church history after the church started. This kind of thing is never mentioned. Uh, there is no pagan religion at this time here that practices such a thing. So this is really a unique thing. It shows up one time. No one really knows exactly what it means, but we do know what it does not mean. Uh, salvation has never in Scripture, ever, I mean, this would go against Paul all over the place, uh, to say that there's a sacramental right you can do to ensure your salvation. We never see it from cover to cover. Genesis 15, God's talking to Abraham. And he says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. You know how people are saved in the Old Testament? By grace, through faith. They're looking forward to the cross. We look back. It's by grace, through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That's Abraham concerning it of God. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's no, no text anywhere near Scripture that you can do some sort of sacramental right for yourself that will bring you salvation, especially doing one for someone who's already died, getting them in. So again, what does this text mean? Well, we're not going to go over all 40 interpretations. I save us a little bit of time, but as I look at the kill, okay, I'll share with you my, my thoughts. Uh, and I like this because um, it fits the context. There's a handful of people who hold to this. This is not just my own thoughts, even though I came up with it before I discovered these other guys. MacArthur holds to this. N.T. Wright holds to this. And if you know anything about MacArthur and N.T. Wright, they're both evangelical, but they are on different sides of the spectrum as far as their ecclesiology and what they're about. They both hold to this. This, this is a good idea. This is a possibility. We don't know for sure, but it's a possibility. And it all works off of those words, baptized. This would say, on behalf of, that's one word in Greek, for, or the dead. It all holds in this. What do those three words mean? Well, throughout the book of Acts, which is when Paul would have written this, right? 
Baptism and salvation were considered synonymous. The New Testament does not know of someone who comes to know Jesus and then they wait three or four or five years and are baptized. No, no, the the New Testament does not know of such a thing. When you come to know Christ, you are baptized immediately. It's like the initiation, right? It's the saying, yes, it's going public. Yes, I'm in with this. Uh, So much so that sometimes referring to someone's salvation, they would say, are you baptized? Because they didn't know of someone who was uh, a believer are not baptized. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 28, go into all the world and baptize, right? Because baptism and salvation are synonymous. Therefore, it's a good possibility that Paul is asking, why do people confess Christ, come to Christ? Then that next phrase, it says, on behalf of, again, it's the Greek word, huper, has 20 meanings, 20 different meanings. So it's this in behalf of, instead of, um, under, for, by, because of. I, I wonder if, if what he's saying is why, he's talking about the resurrection, right? If there's no resurrection, why do people confess Christ because of the dead, because of death, because of the fact that they're afraid of dying? I don't know about you, but that's why I came to know Christ. I did not want to go to hell. That did not sound like a fun thing. I was eight years old, but I was afraid of dying at that point. So I confess Christ. It's a very common reason why people come to know Christ. And Paul might, maybe Paul is saying, listen, if there's no resurrection and people are afraid of, of death, why in the world do they confess Christ? Because that's all they're going to get is there's no resurrection. Uh, maybe he's saying that, that, that the dead are, are people that they loved, friends or relatives who have died and went to heaven. And folks, is another reason why people come to know Christ. They, they confess Christ because of their dead loved ones. They want to see them again one day. And Paul says, if they're never going to see them, if there's no resurrection, why in the world are they, are they confessing Christ? So one of the ramifications of resurrection, of, of that resurrection hope, is salvation. It's, it's why we come to know Christ in the first place, for life. And Paul says, if there's no future life, well, what, are we, what, are we, what are we doing? He goes on in verse uh, 31. So, so ramification is salvation. A second ramification is service. He says... I protest, well, let's go back to 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, the, 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 the beasts in Ephesus, maybe those were real beasts, although it would have been illegal for a Roman citizen to be thrown to the beasts in an arena type thing, and we don't know if that ever happened to Paul or not. Uh, most probably Acts 19, there was a riot. There were some people that he bucked heads with. There were some folk challenging him huge, probably ended up in prison in Ephesus. Maybe that's what he's talking about. There were just some people that he, he's calling beasts. Who, who knows? But either way, it doesn't sound good, does it? It's a bad, it's a bad thing. And Paul is saying straight out, if this is all a sham, 
Why in the world am I being thrown in jail from town to town to town? Why am I getting beat up by telling people about Christ and the resurrection? I'm not going to tell anyone about a resurrection if it didn't happen. Why should I do that and get beat up? Why should you come every week, week after week after week, and give your time to help in Awana for crying out loud if this is not true? We're lying to the kids, first of all. We're wasting our time. Why do we want to take up an offering and give money? We're wasting our money if this is not true for crying out loud let's just use it on our own that's what he's saying eat drink and be merry he's not pushing gluttony or drunkenness he's just pushing hedonism he's saying that's it if there's no resurrection then you know what yolo baby you know you only go around once you live once so make sure the bucket list is 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 solid and go after it and fulfill it because you only live once unless Jesus rose from the dead, and all this is true. There's no better place to spend your time or your money or your energy or your life, even if it incorporates persecution, than telling people about this life-changing message, service. That's why we serve. Hopefully we don't serve just because it's a nice thing to do. We're not. There are a lot of Peace Corps uh, rotary good things, but the church is not that. A whole different deal. We're not just being nice and trying to make sure people are healthy. And there's it, eternity on, in the st- on the stake here. Then he says also, it's an issue of salvation. It's an issue of service. It's also an implication of this resurrection is sanctification. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The sum, I I would circle that sum. I think that's the same sum you find in verse 12. How can some among you say there's no resurrection? Now, listen, Paul is not changing topics on us here. What he, he, he's saying, this is the core of this whole text. This, so, don't miss this. What, what he's, he's saying is, is, is bad company are people who are teaching these twisted doctrines. People who are teaching some some kind of shady stuff. And it's fascinating. He says, this bad teaching, this bad company, doesn't corrupt your thinking, it corrupts your morals. This is, don't quit sinning. This is what he's getting at. He says, if you had listened about this whole resurrection thing, you would have understood it. I wouldn't have had to write half of what I had to write already. Because of this, doctrine, theology, uh, God's, every single piece of God's word. There's no throwaway texts. Uh, this is not a 10 volume set God gave us. Just one. Everything in there. All scripture is inspired and is useful and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, 2 Timothy says. All of it. So the doctrine things are very important because how we think, even the future, it, it's a grid. And the more biblical our mindset, our decisions, our, our hopes, our values, how we see other people, how we see ourselves, how we see circumstances, they come through that. And to the extent that your grid is, is biblical, 
That's going to that's going to determine the decisions you make, which determine your destiny. That's going to determine where you go and what you say and who you associate with and how you live your life. Paul knows this. And so he says, don't diss theology, don't diss doctrine, understand the stuff, because this will control your life. This is why we want Bible studies, not because we want egghead Christian people. It's because the more we understand of who God is, the more we can access that through his Holy Spirit and live accordingly. whole purpose of this death and resurrection of Jesus, according to Paul, is right here. It's, it's not knowledge. It's life change. Let's take a moment, look at an a, a example from here in our body of, of life change. Hmm. Let me just ask you a question. Um, this whole word of God, though, but the whole topic of the resurrection, the crucifixion of Jesus, again, it's not just for knowledge. It's for what Casey find, found out. It's just for transformation. It doesn't make us perfect. It doesn't erase all the, the scars and issues per se. It gives us someone uh, freedom, but it gives us someone that we're walking through who's bigger than those things. It gives us hope for, for tomorrow. It gives us for forgiveness. And so let me get, here's the question. Have you ever embraced this living Jesus? You know, one day, today, the, the, the body of Jesus is someplace. How tall? I don't know, five, nine, I don't know how tall. Uh, dark complexion, uh, dark hair, dark eyes. Uh, you will come before him one day in your body. Would you be able to say, I'm really looking forward to that day? Or does that scare you to death? If you've never embraced him, why? It's a question you need to wrestle with. Why? Maybe now is your time. Would you pray with me?